Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I am Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how goes it? It's going very well. Very excited. Yeah, well, there's a lot of exciting things happening. We uh, we have been promoting the American Crime Festival through this feed and on social media. So check that out, AmericanCrimeFest.com. It's a festival that we are co-hosting, and it's going to be in Wildwood, New Jersey, November 8th, 9th, and 10th, 2019. It's going to be a blast. Check it out, AmericanCrimeFest.com. And our guest today, Marissa Jones, is going to be there. She is one of the guest uh, panelists that we're going to be having at the American Crime Fest. Like you said, we're co-hosting it. We're co-organizing it, really, with uh, Jim and Nicole from PI Magazine, Unsolved Magazine, PI Gear. So they they have the in in that whole industry, and they were uh, nice enough to welcome us into what they planned uh, to be the first one on the, uh, on the northeast side, the, the east coast. They saw a, a cause and a, a reason to have it out here. And, um, yeah, it's going to be a good time. And thankfully, Marissa decided that she would join us there. Marissa is going to join us. She's going to be a part of a, a really an amazing panel that is called How to Create and Maintain a Popular Crime Podcast. And, of course, Marissa Jones does the very popular Vanished podcast, which is specifically about missing people. So uh, check that out, the the Vanished podcast, Marissa Jones. And that panel, she's going to be sitting up there with Captain of True Crime Garage. Tell me who. 
Emily Nestor of Mile Marker 181. The who's who of true crime podcasting. Josh Hallmark of True Crime Bullshit, who does a podcast about Israel Keys. And, of course, our buddy Mike Morford of Criminology, who was on Crawl Space this week. What a cool collection of people who have found success and have been very responsible in their true crime podcasting. It kind of reminds me of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they have all of the inductees just jam uh, up on stage in this, like, super band. But if you... If you go to this festival and you want to have a podcast or you have a podcast, or you're not sure what to do with it, if you're nervous about it, whether it's true crime or not, check out this this seminar because they're going to give some really cool advice and they'll have some questions and answers. And, you know, even after, pull them aside. Say, how did you do it? Captain, Captain, how do you afford a yacht? for example. <laughs> and uh, so please check that out at AmericanCrimeFest.com and check out Marissa's show, The Vanished. In this episode right now, we talk about two disappearances that Marissa has recently covered on her show. One of them is the, the disappearance of Amy Scher from Cambridge, Massachusetts in October of 2002. And the other one is Deb Mello, who went missing from Taunton, Massachusetts in 2000. And both of those Happened, like we said, in Massachusetts, so thank you to Marissa for sort of keeping it in our backyard, and we could have some sort of uh, connection to those cases. Okay, so thank you very much for listening, and check out the Vanished podcast, and check out AmericanCrimeFest.com. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast, Marissa Jones of The Vanished. How are you, Marissa? I'm doing well. How about you guys? We're doing very well over here in Wormtown, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us. We know you have an uh, extremely busy schedule, so we're humbled that you took time out of your day to join us. Well, thank you for having me. And we're uh, also humbled that you're joining us at the American Crime Festival, November 9th and 10th in Wildwood, New Jersey. It is going to be an absolute blast. We are going to put the wild in wild work. Going to keep the wild. At least keep it. <laughs> yeah, I was actually just in uh, Ocean City, New Jersey, which is just down, you know, down the coast and uh, this past weekend. Ah, how was that? It was great. The weather was fantastic. You know, post peak summer heat. It was really great. Nice. Well, we're going to be post post peak summer heat in November. <laughs> so post Halloween. Uh, Post-Halloween, pre-Thanksgiving, so that, that sweet spot, as we like to call it. And uh, you are more than welcome, because Tim already told me that he does not want a part of this, but you are more than welcome to join me for my morning cup of coffee and 10 minutes of self-reflection on Saturday <laughs> and Sunday morning on the boardwalk as we uh, as we look out to the ocean, um, because that is what is in my head that I'm going to do, but Tim doesn't want to join me. I did not say I didn't want to join you. I just said... I don't think you're going to have 10 peaceful minutes no. before the conference starts on Saturday or Sunday. Tim said that there's sharks in the water and he doesn't <laughs> want to be anywhere near them. There are sharks at the festival. Speaking of. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Marissa, you're, you're taking part in a panel that is called How to Create and Maintain a Popular Crime Podcast. And uh, you're going to be there with, with Captain of True Crime Garage, Mike Morford of Criminology, Emily Nestor of Mile Marker 181, and Josh Hallmark of True Crime Bullshit. This is like a who's who. This is like when... It's like a super group. It's a super group. It's like uh, Hollywood vampires. <laughs> it should be fun. Yeah. Do, do, do you uh, 
like all those people or do you want me to cut any of them from the program? I'll cut them. <laughs> I don't know all of them, but okay. um, I'm interested in meeting them. I know I've met Josh and I've met Morph. I don't think I've met any of the others. Oh, really? That's surprising. You haven't met Captain um, Emily. I think was only, uh, or I only met her at this just this year. So um, I guess I'm not too surprised there. But yeah, Captain, it's a, it's a it's a surprising that you and Captain haven't uh, rubbed elbows at this point. Well, you know, I saw him from afar at CrimeCon, but you know how it is when you're there and there's just a line of people at your table and their table. And you just don't get a chance to meet somebody, even though you're just right across the room the whole weekend. I did see you in Chicago, though, at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Right. I was in Chicago. Yeah. And that was one of those brief moments, too, because it's like you, you just you uh, like tap me. You're like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, oh, my God, we were in the, exactly what you explained. We were in the same building all day and hadn't said hi. So, yeah, that yeah. happens uh, happens all too often. It's just busy at these events. Lot of uh, a lot of people to talk to, and it's really just a, a ton of fun. I can't wait to squash the rumors that you and Captain are the same person, because a lot of people think that you and him are the same person because you've never technically been in the same room at the same time. Well, you know, what was funny was I had to correct somebody at True Crime Podcast Festival that kept telling me that they were talking to Lance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was there. <laughs> he was there in spirit. I was there. I was always just around the corner. Yeah, I was like, you know, that's Tim, but you know, <laughs> I I introduced myself as Lance. I was just going to say, how did this yeah. even happen? I had a really cool jacket on, and I was like, people are not going to believe that I'm Tim because of the fashion game that I'm rolling out here at this festival. Were you wearing a side knife? <laughs> Two. <laughs> Two side knives, one for each hand. <laughs> but hey, we digress. We do. And Marissa, of course, you host the Vanish podcast and you speak about missing people. And we wanted to discuss a couple of um, recent cases that you covered. And one of them specifically uh, has to do with this local area, De Deborah Mello. One that's close to close to uh, close to us, really, like close to our our hearts for the most part. We're very familiar with this and we're really happy that you're covering this. Yes. So I covered her case a couple a couple months ago. I think it was either at the end of 2018 or the beginning of 2019. Her brother-in-law contacted me. Now, he was her brother-in-law at the time. He's since uh, divorced. Uh, he and Deborah's sister have since divorced. I guess I should say it that way. But he from the very, very start, was just dedicated to the cause of finding Deborah. Uh, when you talk to people who knew Deborah, you could tell that she was just such a wonderful person. Uh, there was just people lining up to be interviewed for her episode because they loved her so much and missed her so much. And I believe that she was godmother to their children, his, her sister and uh, brother-in-law's children. So... From the very beginning, he kind of stepped up, and even though he and her sister have since divorced, he still is very dedicated to finding her, and he's kind of uh, a bit of the family spokesperson, if you will. So he contacted us, and we started doing interviews, and we spoke to him, her sister, actually two sisters, her sister-in-law, and her friend. And it was really one of those cases where 
you got a good feel for who she was because everybody just had so many wonderful memories of her to share. And you could tell that she just was there for people in her life. She was present in the lives of those around her. She, she was, her, her being gone, it has been devastating for them. So that's where I started with her case. Now she disappeared in 2000 from Weymouth, but she's from Taunton. So her husband uh, took her up to a dermatologist appointment where she bought some products. So she had a, like a bag of products from her appointment. And he says that they start driving home and they get into an argument on Route 18 and that she gets out and leaves her purse and the bag of things that she bought at the doctor's office behind. Now, one thing that listeners pointed out is that no woman gets out of the car and storms off without a purse. Now, Deborah didn't have a cell phone. This was back in 2000. Not everybody had one. And if she was going to call somebody, she would have needed to call somebody to get a ride from there back home. She wouldn't have left her purse and had no way to, you know, use a payphone. So that is suspicious within itself. Louis, her husband, goes home, gets a pizza for their kids. They have two kids. And then leaves and is gone for hours saying that he's looking for her. And that's the only time that he's ever looked for her since she disappeared. Here's a clip that Marissa pulled for us from her episode. This is Deb's friend, Lori. He was always looking for her. So if she had, if she would go out, say her and I, a lot of times we would go to Dunkin' Donuts and we would sit in the parking lot and just sit in the car drinking iced coffees and just chit-chatting. A lot of the times we would have our daughters with us and we would just, they would hang out. They were cousins, of course, and we would talk and just talk. We would see him drive by. And then a little while later, we'd see him drive by again. And we would make jokes about it because we knew like he was just making sure she was where she said she was going to be. Same thing if we would go out and it started to get late. All of a sudden, he would be looking for her. He would be knocking on people's doors that she knew and things like that, looking for her. But it was very strange to me that when she went missing, he wasn't out looking because he was always looking for her. So the weekend before she went missing, we had gone out and we were in separate vehicles, but we met at the same place. And she had a friend with her and I had friends and we were just all together at the same place. I left in my car to go home. She left with her friend in her car to go home. All of a sudden, I find out that he was out looking for her and he was knocking on the girl's door. And I'm, I'm not sure what the girl's name was, but he, he was knocking on her door wee hours of the morning looking for Deb and telling her that she better get home and that, you know, she had no business being there and that kind of stuff. And she had ended up going home. Then it was uh, like one, uh, just a couple of days, a few days. That was probably a Friday or Saturday night. So then it was just that few days later that all of a sudden they had an argument and she was missing. And then he went went home, went to work the next morning, worked all day, went back home and never looked for her? No. 
Yeah. How old are the kids? Uh, they were younger. I forget exact their exact ages right now, but they they were they weren't little little kids, but um, they were old enough that the, the daughter was old enough to stay home with the son. So I think that she may have been like 13 or something and he was a few years younger. I forget off the top of my head their exact ages at the time. Now they're both grown and we contacted them to do an interview and they both declined. And it's one of those situations where they've lost one parent, then they were raised by the other parent. And I think they're in a situation where they don't want to lose both parents because they don't know for sure that he's the one responsible for her disappearance. So it's a tough situation when children, when children are in that, that kind of thing with trying, you know, having to side with one parent when they don't know what happened to the other. Yeah. And getting any sort of uh, media attention, whether it's a, a podcast or a dateline or one of those, mm-hmm. I can't imagine what you would do as an adult now, 19 years later, you were 12 and 13 at the time. Like, what do you, you look at your life and then you think about the repercussions that could happen. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what's, what do you weigh? Do you, how do you yeah. weigh those options? It's, it must be impossible. Look at Sarah Turney. She, uh, she's kind of doing that. And she, you know, of course her sister, Alyssa Turney went missing, but um, you know, she's, she's lost contact with her siblings um, because of, the uh, the media pressure she's put on her sister's case and her dad. Yeah, and that that's that's crazy because they. It's crazy to think about how people value the normalcy of having a parent over mm-hmm. what could possibly be justice. And in, yeah. in Sarah's case, that's what her siblings are doing. They they would prefer to have a Thanksgiving with their dad as opposed to finding out the horrible what could be the horrible truth. And I'm sure it's similar in this case. Yeah. And I've seen uh, cases where there's been one sibling on one side and one on the other, but they just don't talk about the case with each other because they want to maintain a relationship. It's it's really difficult for people. Yeah. We see it with uh, Curtis Murray and Maura and how a lot of people who have never had anything like this happen, maybe they've had a little bit of tragedy, but nothing to this extent. They think if this happened to my sister, I wouldn't stop. I would I would take every interview. I would do every everything that comes down the line to get the name out there. And Curtis summed it up really simply and said, I was 13. I I was going to a new school. I was, uh, you know, I was I was being a teenager yeah. and I didn't really get it. It's a little it's mm-hmm. a lot easier said than done. Yeah. It's a, and, and to say, like, you you can instantly process that is i mean everyone everyone's different there's no way to say well here's your here's your blueprint on how to how to deal with your missing sister or mother yeah we say a lot there's no handbook right but there should be there 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 should be and maybe some of these episodes that that you're doing Marissa and maybe some of these uh, missing more Murray episodes. Hopefully somebody can take something from it and and you know a little bit from here and a little bit from there and put it together for their own situation mhm Definitely. I have a question about the argument in the car. Did he ever say anything about uh, she left her purse behind because their argument was so uh, was so intense that she just needed to get out of the car and she just took off and didn't think about it? Or was it sort of a forgetful thing? I don't think he's ever said why on that. But he did say 
that they were arguing over money, over the cost of the products that she bought at the dermatologist's office. So, and after that, he's really kind of shut himself off. He doesn't talk about her case. And when the media would try to approach him, he would just fly off the handle. And he's been been very difficult to deal with. I mean, he didn't even report her missing um, initially for days on end. And he did some weird things like he told, okay, so Deborah and her husband, Louie, both worked at uh, Dunkin' Donuts. She ran the front end and he ran the back, right? So he was doing the cooking and she was running the, the front. And he told people that their co-workers that she was just homesick that she wasn't missing and so when deborah's sister went in to ask if they could put up missing persons posters the person working there said she's not missing louis told us that she's just homesick and the other weird thing is that her friends and sisters said that if she would ever come out with them to go get a drink or go dancing or go have coffee or whatever, that Louis would follow her and they would see him. Like they used to, uh, her one friend said they would sit in the car and drink coffee and chit chat and gossip. And they would see him like coming around the block watching her and all this stuff. That's so and, creepy. Yeah. And they would just like make jokes about it. Like, oh, there's Louis again. And, other times, like when she would be out dancing or say she went to a concert with her sister, these are all examples, that he would be going around knocking on doors of the people she you know, was out with, seeing if she was there, and just would hunt her down to see who she was with, what she was doing. But then she goes missing, and he doesn't even bother to look for her. Oh, man. So, so he waited how long before reporting her missing? It was several days because uh, her sister thought that he had reported her missing and then she found out that he hadn't. And she then called him and was like, what are you doing? You need to report her missing. And the police initially, you know, when, when they talked to him, they looked at his car, that kind of thing. And they started chasing down all these leads like that she was in, you know, like the trash dump where she was here, she was there, she had been incinerated in this trash place, and they were never able to find anything. I think that the big question is, where was he for those several hours after he told his kids that he was going to look for her? And they were able to... They were, he said that he was in Weymouth looking for her, but he had a cell phone. She didn't. He had a cell phone and they were able to determine that he was in Taunton the whole time that he said he had been in Weymouth. So that's based off of uh, him making phone calls or it's based off of the GPS on the cell phone. I think it's based off of uh, him uh, cell phone pings. Okay. Now, I don't know what that would have been, looked like exactly in 2000. Right. But that's what her family was told by the police back then. You said that they both worked at a local Dunkin' Donuts. Do you happen to know the name of the town that the Dunkin' Donuts was in? No, I believe it was in Taunton, but 
I could be wrong. I don't know exactly which location and even if it's still there, but I believe that he does still work for Dunkin' Donuts. So it's, he probably still works at the same one since they're franchises. And he, you know, the, the other thing that was strange that he did right after she went missing was that he cleaned out all of her stuff and, you know, told the kids that she wasn't coming back. And it just seems like he knew from early on that she wasn't coming back. And he has a history of this controlling behavior. He would say things like, if I can't have you, nobody will. And Deborah had been talking to people saying that she wanted to get a divorce. And we know that when a woman is leaving a relationship, it's the most dangerous time. And apparently they had talked about this divorce. This is from people she had told about the conversation. They had talked about it and she said that she was giving him a certain amount of time to change, get himself together, whatever. And if things weren't better by that period of time that she was going to leave. And her one sister lives in Hawaii. And she even said, why don't you just get the kids and fly out here and you can do the divorce from here. And, you know, I'll, I just want you to be safe. And apparently she had been considering it, but she didn't have solid plans that anybody knows of. So we don't know if, you know, she could have told him in the car that day that, yes, she wants to proceed with a divorce. They could have just had a fight. Who knows? But she was taking those steps and telling people that she was taking those steps to end the relationship. His behavior towards her was so uh, volatile that her sister volunteered her to come stay with her that everyone in the family knew how sort of um, knew his, his potential for his temper. Yeah. And her sister talked about a time early on, early on in the, their relationship where Deborah was pregnant with the daughter. Now, let me add that Deborah was very young when she got married. She was 16 and her mom had to sign something for her to be able to get married. And, so she was young and then she was young when her kids were born, obviously. And she, uh, the, her sister talked about a time when Deborah was pregnant and she was over there helping them decorate the nursery. And she, Louie got really mad and started chasing Deborah around with, um, uh, a curtain rod. And she was so freaked out by it. Her sister was that she ran across the street and called her mother and the mother came and picked both of her daughters up. And then over the years, when asked, Deborah said that, oh, he doesn't hit me anymore. He's better. But we don't know if that's true because not, you know, sometimes people, they, they don't want to talk about it. They have guilt and feelings about, you know, what's happened in the, in their relationship. So we don't really know if he continued to be violent or if, you know, he stopped at some point. Well, I think it's uh I think it's safe to say just looking at historically mm -hmm. men who are abusive in relationships typically don't stop it typically yeah. escalates or just maintains a certain level but most uh, likely 
it was uh, something that just kept uh, getting worse and worse. And here is Deb's friend, Lori, again. By the time I met Debbie, a lot of the physical stuff that I heard about, a lot of that stuff, I didn't see because it was before I met her, a lot of it. He was more mentally abusive with her. He would do things like say he was going to kill himself, say things like, if I can't have you, nobody will. That kind of like manipulative. I'll give you an example. So he didn't like me because Debbie and I were very close. He bought her this big, gaudy diamond and ruby ring. I was over her house and he did not want me there. She had taken the ring off in the bathroom to wash her hands, left it on the sink. Louis took the ring and hid it, then turned around and asked her where it was. And she said it was in the bathroom. Well, of course, it wasn't in the bathroom because he had already taken it. So then he turned around and accused me of stealing it. This is the games he used to play. And we had a big blowout. He threw me out and, and whatnot, accusing me of stealing her ring, which God, I would never do. I don't remember if it was the following day or whatever. I went back over to Deb's. Louie was at work and her and I tore the house apart looking for that ring. And we both kind of knew that he took that ring, but we were looking. Did he hide it somewhere? We looked everywhere. We moved the furniture, cushions, you name it. We moved it. We looked everywhere. Never found the ring. That same day he comes home and I'm still there. So big fight again. I leave. He starts looking around the house, puts his arm under the couch and pulls out the ring. Oh, here's the ring. Oh, she must have put it here. She liked jewelry, but Louie was always the type that he always had to have the biggest and the best and the most expensive. So a lot of the stuff that he would buy her would be so big and gaudy. And she's like, when am I going to wear this? I'm never going to wear this. <laughs> that kind of a thing. But she, of course, she had it on her finger or whatever, took it off, like I said, at the sink. But no, it was not something that she was really interested in. She was very, she liked to look good. She liked to wear, you know, nice clothes, but very like casual, nice clothes. Not like, you know, I'm going to wear this beautiful gown and I'm going to go out shopping at the grocery store. It was more like, you know, a nice pair of jeans and a nice shirt. She was very casual, but she always looked very nice. It was his attempt at driving a wedge between her and her very, very close friend. And she said he would just pull little things like that because he clearly didn't like her and didn't want her around Deborah. So it's all these little things that he would do that add up that kind of show you how controlling he was. But she did maintain her relationships with people. She didn't let it you know, ruin relationships or break off her relationships. She, you know, despite how controlling he was, she was still very close with, with so many people. And her sister in Hawaii said that when they were making those plans over the phone about her possibly coming out there, that she would hear somebody pick up another line in the house and she would say, like, Deborah, shh, I heard somebody and she thinks that he was listening in and possibly could have known that they were planning something for her to come out there. What do you know about the searches that were done? Well, I know that all of those little leads where people were saying, you know, check this 
trash dump or check this uh, air air base, check here, check there. The police did check those places, but they've just never found any evidence of her anywhere. And it's just been one of those things where, you know, all that's missing is her and the clothes that she was wearing. And despite the searches, they've never found anything. I know I think it was in 2017, they did a dig and it was funny on the news, they were saying, oh, they're, the police are digging here and we don't know who they're looking for. And then as they're videotaping live, her brother-in-law rolls up and they're like, oh, look, there's Steve. We know who they must be looking for then because he's so known to the media because he's tried so hard to keep her story out there and he he bought you know billboards and all this stuff over the years and I do think from you know speaking with him he does there seems to be some animosity there between him and Louis um I know that he tried to confront Louis and and just you know it was a nasty situation and so I do think that he he really wants to see justice for Deborah because he, it, I, you can tell it just nags at him that he feels that Louis responsible and has gotten away with this for all these years and Deborah was taken away from her family you were saying that there were searches that were done in landfills and and dumpsters uh, were these all coming in from anonymous sources or was this from uh family members where where were the sources coming from i think that it was both i think that people were saying you know check where the dumpster at the dunkin Dun dunkin donuts goes to that kind of thing and they were saying oh there's this landfill across the streets real close and I think people were throwing out places where you could potentially hide a body and not be seen, that kind of thing. And I just don't think that they've ever really nailed down a good place or a potential place. Although if the cell phone records from back in 2000 are correct, then it would appear that Louis returned to Taunton from Weymouth after her appointment and then went out for several hours and stayed in Taunton. So, I mean, it kind of, if he is responsible, you'd think it would be somewhere in the area where she would be, but we can't really be certain. When he said that he uh, went to go look for her, bought the kids pizza and then left, do you think that that is out of character or in character? Meaning, why wouldn't he take the kids to go look for their mother with him? Is that out of character for him? Or am I reading too much into it? No, I don't. I don't. I, I mean, to me, it's odd. But I think, in my opinion, I think those hours that he was gone are really key because initially his first story to police was that he was in Weymouth looking for her in the area where she got out of the car. And then you find out that he was never in Weymouth looking for her. So what was he doing? 
and it kind of makes sense why he would leave the kids there if he is responsible and was disposing of her body. So who knows? But I mean, that's what it seems like to me. Uh, but you know, you can't be certain on that because there's just never been any evidence recovered, but also no one reports seeing her walking along route 18 and I'm not from there, but, uh, the, her family says that that road would have been very busy at that time. So you have to wonder if she ever got out of that car there. Does he still own the same car? I don't believe so. Have you had uh, any contact with him or do you plan to have any contact with him? No, he, we were not able to reach him. But like I said, um, in the in her episode, her sister talks about a time when a news camera, you know, news cameraman approached him outside of the Dunkin' Donuts at the dumpster, and he really flew off the handle. And he just doesn't talk to to media about it. And he, you know, he's really just shut that whole part of his life is completely out and for somebody who would obsess over his wife being out having coffee in her car with a girlfriend and drive around and around the block i mean for him not to care and she just disappears it's i mean it's pretty telling i think i think so yikes it's a tragic case it really mm-hmm. is it's um you know on the surface it it looks like a uh it looks like the story you hear a lot, you know, an abusive relationship that finally reached like this inevitable conclusion, this unfortunate conclusion. Guy is still free because they can't find the woman's body. Yeah. And unfortunately I see that all the time. And after covering a lot of similar cases like that, it does sometimes feel like if you can just hide somebody good enough and, hide any clues as to what you did that it's easy to get away with it yeah i mean yeah we we run into that as well we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price priceline Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And so uh, you also covered a case, a woman by the name of Amy Shear. She went missing as well. And, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about this case. Okay, so Amy's case is very similar to Deborah's, although I would say that it's maybe, I'll say listeners have said it. it's, one of the most, if not the most devastating episode that they listened to. And Amy was married to a man named Robert Desmond. That was not her first husband. She had been married previously and she met Robert. Robert came into her work as a temp and she met him and they had this like whirlwind relationship happen. She leaves her husband 
and just moves in with this guy real quick. And her family said that's like really out of character for her because she was always that kid who did everything by the book. She was a good student. She went to college. She was successful in her career. She had a good job. And she she married this guy. And it was very odd for her to kind of step out of that lane of, you know, doing everything by the book kind of kind of thing. And so her family was really confused at first uh, why she was with this guy. But then he started completely alienating her from her family and friends, everybody. I mean, we saw in Deborah's case where her husband tried to do this. Well, Robert Desmond was successful and he did things like he would call okay so amy was raised she's jewish and so he would call her mom and sister and threaten them and make anti-semitic remarks to them to the point where they had to file charges against him and in hindsight they believe that he may have done this on purpose to completely alienate her family because they were scared for their safety. I mean, they were really, really scared. They didn't just say like, oh, this guy's a jerk. They were afraid that he was going to harm them. So they did step back from Amy because they were scared and they didn't know what else to do. So years go by. Amy is really all she's doing at this point is going to work. She's the breadwinner. She doesn't really have any outside contact with anybody besides the people she works with. She's got no friends, no family. I mean, they're there. They want a relationship with her, but she's not allowed to have a relationship with them. So at some point, Amy and her husband have a baby. Her family doesn't even know that the child existed. And she, what happens is that her employer starts seeing signs of abuse and they're not just subtle signs of abuse. They're extreme signs of abuse. Now this is a clip that I had sent you. Yep. And her, after she disappeared, her boss wrote a letter to the police detailing the abuse that they had seen um, at one point. They thought she had a broken leg. She came in dragging it, clutching onto the walls. Um, she had bruises. Her hands were swollen, things like that. And it was extreme and it was visible. And they tried everything they could to help Amy. When they thought she had a broken leg, they offered to take her to the hospital and she refused and they, at first they thought, well, maybe she doesn't have the money. And so then they offered to pay for it and she refused. And so they believe that she wasn't allowed to seek treatment for her injuries, Yeah, which makes sense. But she, uh, something, so there's this catalyst with her case where her mother hires a private uh, investigator 
to go out and find Amy to make sure she's okay. And so the private investigator locates Amy and has Amy's sister, her, her daughters, they send, um, a picture of themselves and they write on the back a note to their aunt Amy. And so the private investigator tracks Amy down at work and in the parking lot hands her these photos of, you know, that the kids sent of themselves with the little notes and Amy became visibly upset. And then she goes in to her office and she calls Robert. This is what they, they believe happened. They know she calls him and she's upset. And then she tells her boss that she wants to make a complaint about this private investigator approaching her. And they believe that was Robert told her to do that. Sorry, can I interrupt for a second? Was was Amy still working at Leahy Clinic at this point? Right. She was working at Leahy Clinic. And that's who... Now, Leahy Clinic, they had... Not only did they try to help her when they thought she had a broken leg, but they also brought in uh, counselors to help them deal with the situation. Apparently her co-workers were so distressed because they were seeing all these visible signs of abuse. They put up signs in the bathroom saying, you know, like with resources for domestic violence shelters, things like that. Oh, wow. And then her boss offered her, I believe, $10,000 to leave with her son and go underground. Wow. I mean, these people went above and beyond. And. And uh, Leahy Clinic is a hospital itself. The one she, she worked in in, mm-hmm. the, in Burlington at Leahy Clinic. My mom actually worked at Leahy Clinic in Burlington too in the nineties. Um, mm-hmm. So she potentially even could have bumped into Amy or known her. Um, but yeah, right. I mean that is a hospital. I used to actually go to that uh, hospital for checkups and stuff. Do you have any uh, Do you have any opinion on why uh, authorities weren't uh, reached out to after? Her boss offers her $10,000 to go underground, and it was so obvious that she was being abused. No, I don't know why. I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think people are worried to get police involved or what. Or some people say, well, they should have called children, you know, protective services because the child. And I can't speak for them as to why they didn't, but I think that they were trying to give Amy resources to do it herself, like on her own time and being okay with it. And it just wasn't happening. And, you know, sometimes it's more dangerous to leave than to stay, right? So people are afraid to take that step. And and we know that this abuse was horrific. That she... So, I mean... It's not hard to believe that Amy was terrified to leave this man. So I don't know why they didn't take it one step further. But what they did do was amazing. I mean, all the things that they did to try to help was above and beyond. So, But there's another clip that I sent you. And it's kind of eerie to me. Uh, It's... a a letter that a priest had written. And as I explained earlier, Amy was raised in a Jewish household. She was, it was very important to her, part of her identity. 
right? And she, in the months before she disappeared, she contacts this priest. Now, Robert is Catholic. And she says that she wants to convert. And I believe and others believe that this was not Amy's choice. This was another controlling aspect or controlling move on Robert's part. I spoke with uh, the priest. He met her twice right before she died. She never followed up after the second visit. This happened about a month before she went missing. That priest actually called Amy's boss about a week after she went missing because he was concerned about why she changed her mind about becoming Catholic and whether, in fact, she had actually moved away. He told me, the priest told me, I think he's since died, Father McCormick. He told me Amy was dressed like a conservative Jewish mother, plain, simple, clothing covered her entire body, very thin. He asked her about her Jewish upbringing. She said she had been raised Jewish in Brookline, but over time she drifted away. He, she didn't say anything about being estranged from her family. She had Michael with her. She said, the priest said he seemed like a bright child. He talked about how they say prayers all the time, and he knew the story of Adam and Eve, and he knew the entire Our Father at age six. He said Desmond's perspective on Catholic, Catholic teaching was very conservative. He was dogmatic. He said he had been away from the church for a while. He said Desmond, he'd seen Desmond five or six times in the past in church, had never spoken to him and never saw him again in church after Amy went missing. He said Amy called him, called him in the first instance to ask about converting. And he was surprised when the whole family showed up at her first meeting because it should have just been her, but Desmond showed up too. He said Michael and Desmond had a history of praying together and that Amy said she would not pray with them, but would stand by and observe and be respectful. He gave me the name of some other priests that might have more information in Burlington. He said he's never had any other conversations with Desmond. And Amy did not appear abused. However, he wonders whether her dress were covering up bruises. Her dress was covering up bruises. Chris Lucchesi, which was her boss at Leahy, is very, very traumatized by the whole situation. He said he is 100% certain she would never have left Michael. He never knew Desmond's name because Amy never mentioned it, but she did talk about Michael. And it just made me feel like this wasn't her choice. And it was one of the last things that he was trying to take from her was her identity, her religion. And it just has this eerie feel the way he describes it. But these are kind of the the last things that are happening in Amy's life that we know of. And then, like I said, the private investigator comes up with the pictures and Amy's at work. And then she leaves work and then it's the weekend and there's a, a neighbor of Amy and Roberts reports that she heard a, a loud fight between the two. And then the next day, Amy goes to work and she leaves early, although the neighbor isn't certain what day she heard the fight. So it could have been that Monday when Amy went to work. But then the following day, Amy calls in sick. The next day, she calls in sick again. And it's this day that they believe that Amy was murdered. And then 
the following day, Robert calls in sick for Amy, and then he asks for her boss's email address, and he says that Amy wants to send something to the boss, but that she's unable to. I mean, also, the other thing that's weird about that is if Amy's there and just unable to send an email, she would know her boss's email address. So then the employer gets a letter of resignation emailed to him from Robert's email, not Amy's, but Robert's. And Robert says the next day is the last time he sees Amy and he dropped her off at a train station. And that's the last time anyone reports seeing her, although he's the only one. There's no, there's no evidence that he ever dropped her off at that, at that train station. Although their son says that they did, but he was just very young, like six or seven. So he, the day before, he claims that he dropped her off at the train station. The day before, she wasn't even in the con a condition to tell him the email address of her boss. So she could, I mean, she wasn't in the condition to send her resignation letter. Come she to the phone. She, she couldn't even come to the phone. She couldn't even write down on a piece of paper what her boss's email address was. But the right. next day, she's good enough to be dropped off alone at a train station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the police... Okay, so their son was eight at the time, and the police did speak to him, and he did say that they dropped her off at the train station and she had $7,000. Now, we don't know if he was coached, but... One could assume. Yeah. And the thing with with him is he's now an adult, but um, he the police have spoken to him over the years and have told the family that he's very brainwashed. And he's on social media, but I made the ethical decision not to contact him because I do believe that he may know something and I think that if he comes forward I wouldn't want him to go to the police with that information so I don't know he's it's a tough situation with him because he he was raised by his father completely and one of the, the remarkable things about this case is that Amy's mom tried to get visitation rights of Michael and they went to court and it was initially thrown out because in order to get visitation rights as a grandparent, you had to have a pre-existing relationship with the child, which we know that she didn't have because they had been completely alienated from Amy. And their attorney, who is interviewed in the episode, she's great, she appealed this on the fact that the reason that there was no pre-existing relationship was that, that there was domestic violence present and that there was alienation. And they eventually won, and it was a landmark case in your state. And uh, then Robert fled the state with Michael. And... Amy's mom told her attorney, she said, I just can't do it anymore. Because the attorney said, well, go to California. We'll get a judge to help us. 
And she just said, I can't do it anymore. And unfortunately, Amy's mom passed away without ever meeting Michael or finding out what happened to her daughter. Amy's sister, Joni, is still searching for answers. She would love to have a relationship with Michael, but she's cautious about contacting him because she's she's worried about what he's been told about Amy and their family and, you know, what his reaction will be because of the manipulation in that relationship. I mean, if you look at how how Amy was and can you imagine a child growing up in that situation? Who knows what his life has been like? So it's hard to say. But that that's kind of what has transpired after. But also, one important thing we didn't touch on is that when her employer contacted the police because they were concerned that she, the way that she resigned was not normal and they were concerned because of the abuse they had witnessed, the police went to Amy and Robert's house and Robert just gave that story about the train station and they were like, okay. And nothing else was done until her mom contacted the private investigator again to go check up on Amy again. And the private investigator couldn't find her anywhere. So the family reported her missing, but it was 18 months after she had disappeared. Wow. My God. What another tragic case. Right. Yeah. And the, the other thing about that is by the time they were able to search the house, he had sold it. And the person who bought it was an architect who just gutted it down to the studs. What was the uh, what was the intent after he sold it? Were people waiting to go in there and search? Um, I believe he sold it prior. There's a neighbor of hers who also worked at Leahy Clinic and she was a nurse. And she reported smelling burning flesh. And she said, because I'm a nurse, I know what that actually smells like. She said she reported smelling burning flesh after Amy disappeared. And they wanted to search in that house. But by the time they realized Amy was missing and by the time they got a search warrant, it had been sold and gutted and then remodeled completely. So any evidence is really thought to be gone with that remodel. That's incredible. You can mm-hmm. hypothetical this is all alleged, hypothetical. You can you can uh kill your wife, have the worst alibi, the the worst cover up. You can possibly dispose of the body in your own fireplace and for some reason you can still get away with murder. Yeah, and also and a history of violence. Su- yes, that's what I was going to say. Have such an egregious <laughs> history of violent behavior towards your wife. Yeah, it's not like people didn't see this coming. Yeah, and so that's why I sent you that clip of the the uh, attorney. She reads this letter from the employer, and it's just so damning. Chris and I became more observed of Amy's physical appearance. Nothing seemed out of sorts until the fall of 98 around Thanksgiving. From late November till after Christmas, Amy was constantly coming to work hurt. Her glasses were broken. Her hands were swollen. The same thing occurred the following year, also around the holidays. Amy's attendance was always in question. She was often out for several days at a time. When she would return, 
usually saying her son was sick. It was her that was actually hurt. I can remember all the horrible conditions. One event had Amy coming to work, dragging her leg behind her, clinging to the walls and grimacing in pain. I offered to help her. Of course, I asked what happened. She said she had been thrown from a horse while visiting her sister. This is the first time I ever heard her talk about any family other than her son. She never mentioned her husband by name or any kind of reference for the five years I worked with her. I offered to take her to our emergency room for treatment. She said no. At first, I thought the copay was the issue, and I offered to pay the copay, but she refused. I was very concerned. I called the nurse manager to come to the office and see if she could give her some help. The nurse approached her at her desk, and Amy refused help, saying she was okay. I got her a key to use the handicapped lift and parking area in front of our building. She continued to grab onto anything she could for support, including the side walls of the cubicles. After several days, she showed up with crutches that were for a child. After struggling with small crutches, she showed up with adult crutches. Amy never fully recovered from her injury and limped very noticeably from that day on. She always wore very thick, heavy blue knee socks, and you could detect a brace or support device of some sort under the socks. I believe Amy's leg was broken, and I never believed that a horse threw her. During Amy's employment, her injuries were so obvious that many people in our building would approach Amy and ask if she was okay. Could they get her some help? One woman put battered woman's brochures in the ladies' bathroom and in everyone's office mail slots. Amy would never own up to the abuse. She had the knuckles on her hands were very large and swollen. Her hands were also scratched and swollen. She had burn marks on them, would look to be from a cigarette. When I would go to Amy's cubicle to discuss work, she would keep her hands under her desk. If she was showing me something on her computer, she would type quickly, then hide her hands. On one occasion, she couldn't type because her hands were too swollen. She didn't offer any reason, and I didn't press. Shortly after the leg injury, Amy appeared bruised often. We called in counselors to help us and the other employees try to understand what we could or couldn't do to help her. I remember the counselor saying that when the bruises were visible, the worst was coming. She told us when the bruises are visible, the abuser doesn't care anymore. These are just you know, observations by people who saw her for five years. And this person is correct that abusers try to hide it from the world. But once they stop hiding it from the world is when you're most likely to see a woman die because they no longer care if people know. The priest was so concerned, like he had a weird feeling about it, about the whole thing, that he contacted Amy's employer after she didn't show up again and he was concerned. And to have... That kind of weird feeling is telling to me also as a priest who probably has people come in and never show up at the church again, ever, you know? Sure. So the whole thing is, I mean, that story, I just, I don't know how he's gotten away with it. I understand there's no physical evidence but man, is there a mountain of circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Where is he? He's in California now. He's still alive. Um, He has moved from California and then he's moved to the south and back and forth. And I was not able to find contact information for him. He is basically an off the grid kind of guy. Now, I did find the son and but his dad, I don't know what where he is exactly right now but he after amy disappeared he really kept a low profile and 
you know, it just, it just screams that he had something to do with her disappearance. And, and I do have a distinct feeling that the private investigator coming over and, and the family contact and then her calling him and then she's very upset and then the neighbor hears a big fight in the days after this happened and then all of a sudden she's sick too sick to come to work it just to me it just seems like maybe that that event that private investigator contacting her after all those years of not having any family contact may have sparked some huge fight or something mm -hmm. like that it may have enraged him Ugh, so tragic marissa my gosh and they are similar and yeah i know it's it's such a theme that we we've been talking about a lot lately um internally that it just seems like it's too easy in some cases over and over again and I asked that question earlier about why didn't people call the police when something was so clearly happening. There were so many moments where she was obviously being abused, but I'm talking about it from, you know, being an adult in 2019 and being hyper aware of this. But in 1994, five, six, seven, you know, that that I feel like it was almost a a time when it was like you said, they they were giving her all of the hints and all of the suggestions for her to fix it on her own and i don't think people were as educated enough in that sort of psychology to to realize that you, you can't fix it on your own you have to intervene and you have to make sure that 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 law enforcement knows about this or else it just escalates it always escalates it's hard to say i mean if that were happening happening at your work there's sometimes people have this thing where they they don't want to get involved they're like, that's not my business or they're uncomfortable bringing it up to the person or it feels kind of like a confrontation just asking about it. And it's it's one of those situations where it's hard. I think it's hard to know exactly what you would do if the person's not really confiding in you. You're just seeing it and you're like, what do I do? You know, how can I help? Um but not make this person uncomfortable at the same time. Well, you do a great job with what you do, and there is uh, there's a lot to be said for that, you know, for the people who don't know what to do. I think, uh, I think people like yourself put forth a really uh, as good of a game plan as, or like we were saying before, there's no, no handbook on it, but, you know, we can try to at least provide some sort of some sort of logical direction. Right. Well, I guess that yeah. that begs the question: What do you do if you find yourself in this situation? Well, I'll tell you. For her episode, I, it was really so devastating that I had uh, Laura Richards on, and you know, she's on Real Crime Profile, but she's also you know a behavioral analyst and all that stuff, and she gave a lot of good pointers about ways to talk to people. And the words to use and words not to use. And I found that I found that to be really helpful. Um, but I do think that, you know, when somebody's in that situation, getting them to feel safe talking to you about it is really important. It's like a first step that you could be like a safe person. And one thing that Laura mentioned was that 
if you just, you know, call the cops or something, you could actually end up putting somebody in a more dangerous situation um, that you really have to come up with a plan to, you know, with the person to get them out safely. And so it's really a tough situation in a case like Amy's that where, you know, she, she really, her level of being trapped was, was really severe. She, she didn't have family that she was talking to that were saying, oh, hey, just come to our house and, and we will keep you safe. But at the same time, if Amy had gone to stay with her family, would, would, would any of them been safe? I don't know. I don't, I honestly don't know. Like she was in such a dangerous situation with him. Um, and, and like one of the things that her boss says in the letter is that when she came in and they thought her leg was broken, she said that she was thrown from a horse while out riding horses with her sister and at that point she had been alienated from her sister for years and it's just it's crazy to think that you know she had to come up with these wild stories to explain why she was dragging a broken leg I mean it's I can't even imagine living that and and what kind of danger she was in and, and probably walking on eggshells 24 7 and in that situation, I do think it, it, the best thing you can do is to get people talking to, to you and get them to feel safe and then talk about ways that you can get help and get, you know, a, a, an organization that deals with this on a regular basis in to help because they know what to do and they know about the real dangers. And I know, like, there's the domestic violence hotline where you can call you can even chat with them from your computer and they have tons of resources and I do think that it's important to to get people from being totally isolated and alone to knowing that there are resources out there you really have to be careful because you don't want to put somebody in more danger by uh, their partner who's abusive finding out that that they're you're, they're gonna leave them or something like that. So that I, I really thought a lot about that and how I would go about something. And I do think that getting professionals involved is key. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Marissa. We really appreciate you coming on the show and discussing these two uh, tr really tragic disappearances, missing person cases, and um, our, our hearts go out to the, the families and friends. And uh, keep, please keep up the good work, Marissa. The work you do is so important. 